My Boss Doesn't Care podcast episode number one. Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the My Boss Doesn't Care podcast. The focus of this podcast is simple. 100 episodes committed to giving you better ideas, philosophies, and changing your mindset about your boss, your workplace, and the difference, and this is critical, between your work and your job. I started this podcast partially because I wrote a book of the same name that you can pick up on Amazon. But I also started it because of the feedback that I was receiving from well-intentioned people working in industries of all kinds, from county governments and social services workers, all the way to manufacturers, construction workers, and retail servers. Feedback such as, it's great that you're telling all of us this brave stuff about leadership in this training, but my workplace doesn't work like that. Or, we are paid here to keep our heads down, do the work according to regulations, and then go home. We aren't paid to lead. None of the things you just talked to us about apply to us here. Or, it would be great if you were our boss and our leader, but you're not. So how do I do the things you're talking about on a daily basis? My job is to run a consultancy and corporate training firm in the heart of upstate New York. You know where upstate New York is. It's one of those places that America likes to forget even still exists. It's one of those places where the out-migration is higher than the in-migration. I believe, however, that people working in organizations deserve better leadership, whether they are in upstate New York or in the heart of your local urban center. I also believe the philosophies, ideas, and practices that undergird our thinking about workplace culture matter more, almost, than workplace culture itself. I come to change your thinking. In case you haven't noticed, the evidence is all around you that the Industrial Revolution is over. Organizations lay off employees as if it's a bodily function, and the remainder, those unfortunate employees who are left like survivors in a lifeboat, are approached and demanded, not asked, to do more with less. Has there ever been a worse organizational development phrase? Since the collapse of the economy in 2008, Jobs and positions have expanded in sectors of the American and the global economy that have been dubbed the human services, i.e. healthcare, education, social services, etc. But the management of people in those sectors has turned out to still be top tier, command and control, hierarchical based. There are other jobs, of course, if an employee is command if an employee is in a command and control and hierarchical based culture. And there are other jobs, of course, if an employee is willing to move to get them. And there are other jobs, of course, if an employee is willing to side hustle, as many employees are willing to do, on the internet, using tools such as Amazon or eBay. But a recent report I read indicates that Americans are far more willing than they ever have been in American history to stay at home, work close to home, and, to paraphrase from one of our founding fathers, suffer evils while they must. On top of all of this, we have generations switching around in the workplace. There are 80 million 
millennials, people born between 1984 and 1997, who will be in the workforce totally by 2025. And there are 65 to 70 million baby boomers, people born between 1946 and 1964 or so, or so who will either be almost out of the workforce or completely out of the workforce by 2025. This is a massive generational shift that organizations and organizational leadership is ill-prepared to address. We also have a generation squeezed in between. The Generation Xers, right? Those individuals who were born between 1964 or so, or so and 1977 or so. There's only around 20 million of them, but these are people who generationally have been in the workforce for quite some time and they were raised and they were and they have seen leadership exemplified by things that have gone on in the past now there are more millennials than gen xers and they are the holy grail demographically for employees or for employers marketers and others and you know what the millennials want the ones that baby boomers throw up their hands in the air and sort of sigh about. They want empathy. They want empathy from bosses. They want work-life balance. They want a redefinition of productivity. And they want a reestablishing of the norms of family. And this is not according to me. This is according to the Washington Post. Gripe all you want about it. And some of you already are. Some of you out there are rolling your eyes even as I'm giving you these numbers. Some of you are saying, well, the millennials, they'll start learning how to pay rent or get a mortgage. They'll have children and then they'll come around. They'll do all the things that other traditional generations have done. Or some of you are saying, so what, Hasan? I don't care. We actually outnumber them and we control their fate. We're organizations, we're cultures, we're leaders. We're the ones that get to decide what they do, not the other way around. Well, gripe all you want about them, but 85 million people or 80 million people, depending upon which demographic survey you look at, is kind of a big deal. So if command and control top down hierarchical work structures are failing everywhere we can see from Wells Fargo to Toys R Us and are failing for economical, sociological, physiological, and even spiritual reasons. Why is it? Why is it that I and other organizational behavior leaders still have employees walking up to us after trainings about conflict in the workplace and whisper to us, my boss will never let you do, will never let me do what you recommended that I do in class just now. He'd fire me if I confronted him about his bad behavior, about his poor communication style, about his lack of interest in what I'm doing and my coworkers are doing. And he'd fire me if I told him that I was responsible for the organizational culture around here, not him. Or worse, Hasan, he won't fire me. He'll just write me up for insubordination, and if I get enough write-ups, I'm gone. What do we do with that kind of feedback? What do we do with our cultures around that?
We have millennials afraid to confront organizational structures that need to change to match their work styles. As a matter of fact, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has started tracking this. And what we have found is that 16% of individuals between the ages of 21 and 34 have quit a job. 16% have quit a job with absolutely no intention of having another one lined right up. This is astounding. This is unheard of. So we have millennials afraid to confront organizational structures. They'd rather quit without a plan to go back. We have Generation Xers squeezed between aging parents and maturing children. Remember the battles of the 1990s when all of these changes really started to kick in. And they feel as though they have been only called to battle their entire careers and are tired of the fight. And lastly, we have baby boomers shaking their heads at the knuckleheads. I had a conversation with somebody about this recently, who have gotten promoted and wondering when the promised change marched for in the 60s, codified in the 70s, and capitalized on in the 80s and 90s, the promised leadership change is finally going to come along to ultimately benefit everybody, not just a select few. So what is the answer for everyone? Well, I believe, and this is the focus not only of this podcast, but of the essays and the podcasts that are following after this one, I believe the answer is more humane leadership. But see, the problem with that answer is that's been the answer since time out of mind. And still we have organizations from Wells Fargo to your local restaurant occupied, led by, and established by bosses that treat workers as if they are a commodity. And then these same individuals wonder why their workforce is declining. And then they come to me in desperation and say, hey, hey, son, training would be the way to fix this, right? Education would be the way to solve this. But that's not quite the answer. The answer is we need to develop more emotionally intelligent leaders. But that's been the answer since at least the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. But Henry Ford believed that the way to more humanity was to give workers better houses and healthcare benefits. And Walt Disney believed that compliments weren't necessary for doing good work. And if you go back and look at the history of Disney, the history of the Magic Kingdom, unions unionized his workforce because they didn't get enough pats on the back, not because they weren't paid enough. I'm not the first person to say this, so there's a guy floating around out there. Been floating around for like 20 years, a guy named Daniel Goleman. He wrote a great book called Emotional Intelligence. And uh, he tells a story, which is kind of instructive about this. In chapter 10 of Emotional Intelligence, He tells the story of Melbourne McBroom. Melbourne was a domineering boss with a temper that intimidated those who worked with him. That fact might have passed unremarked had McBroom worked in an office or a factory. But McBroom was an airline pilot. One day in 1978, McBroom's plane was approaching Portland, Oregon when he noticed a problem with the landing gear. So McBroom went into a holding pattern circling the field at high altitude while he fiddled with the mechanism. As McBroom obsessed about the landing gear, the plane's fuel gauges steadily approached the empty level. But his co-pilots 
were so fearful of McBroom's wrath that they said nothing, even as disaster loomed. The plane crashed, killing 10 people. Today, the story of that crash is told as a cautionary tale in the safety training of airline pilots, even almost 40 years later. In 80% of airline crashes, pilots make mistakes that could have been prevented, particularly if the crew worked together more harmoniously. Teamwork, open lines of communication, cooperation, listening, and speaking one's mind, rudiments, rudimentary elements of social intelligence are now emphasized in training pilots along with technical prowess. To continue from Goldman, the cockpit is a microcosm of any working organization, but lacking the dramatic reality of an airline crash, the destructive efforts of miserable morale, intimidated workers, or <laughs> arrogant bosses, or any of the dozens of other permutations of emotional deficiencies in the workplace can go largely unnoticed by those outside the immediate scene. But the costs can be read in signs such as decreased productivity, an increase in missed deadlines, mistakes and mishaps, and, and this one is important for you listening, an exodus of employees to more congenial settings. There is inevitably a cost to the bottom line from low levels of emotional intelligence on the job. When it is rampant, companies can crash and burn. To continue from Goldman, the cost-effectiveness of emotional intelligence is a relatively new idea, and by the way, Goldman published his book in 1995, almost 20 years ago now, for businesses, one some managers might find hard to accept. A study of 250 executives found that most felt their work demanded, quote, their heads and not their hearts. Many said they feared that feeling empathy or compassion for those they worked with would put them in conflict with their organizational goals. One felt the idea of sensing the feelings of those who worked for him was absurd. It would, he said, quote, be impossible to deal with people, unquote. Others protested that if they were not emotionally aloof, they would be unable to make the quote-unquote hard decisions that business requires, although the likelihood is that they would deliver those decisions more humanely. Finally, from Goldman to wrap up, this study was done in the 1970s when the business environment was very different. Goldman's argument is that such attitudes are outmoded, a luxury of a former day. A new competitive reality is putting emotional intelligence at a premium in the workplace and in the marketplace. Leading with heart. Managing with wisdom. Supervising with attention. These are not characteristics of emotional intelligence that are passe, that are unimportant, or that ultimately are revenue non-generating. Our bosses a word whose derivation from the Dutch reflects the need to distinguish slave labor from free labor and indicates an overseer, has to go. Because in the 21st century, people don't need an overseer. 
and employees don't need a master. In a post-industrial revolution American world, at least, employees need collaborators, confidants, and disruptors in order to take the actions that only they can take, in order to commit not to a job, but to work that actually matters. We need managers and leaders, not bosses, to realize that there are so many places where an employee's voice can add value. There are so many places where we need employees to stand up, raise their hand, be a statesman, and to say for them, for their team, and for their organizations, this is us, this is what we're making, and this is why it matters. And if our bosses don't care enough to give us the space to do that, then we have to start the process of changing our workplaces with them. My Boss Doesn't Care is the name of this podcast, but it doesn't have to be that way. And in the following episodes, I'll hopefully be able to lay out the steps for you for how to do this. Thank you for listening.